hello and welcome to the Nirvana Strength Practitioners Panel Podcast, where we explore the idea of human performance optimization. Uh, I'm Ian McLeod, the co-founder of Nirvana Strength, and on today's episode, we'll be joined by calisthenics expert physiotherapist Simon Atta. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Asa. That's fine. Atta. Yeah. Atta. Asa. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, or as many of you might know him uh, on Instagram as Sai Monster, and we'll maybe touch on how you got your uh, nickname, yeah. which I think would be really cool. Uh, he is a world leader in bodyweight training. Starting gymnastics at an early age, he became passionate about mastering control of the body and immersed himself in the world of bodyweight strength training. So then expanding on his skill set with training in martial arts, circus, and breakdance, that's definitely a lot of stuff there. Uh, his movements and teachings reflect a mixture of knowledge from each of these disciplines. Attaining a Bachelor of Physiotherapy degree alongside personal training qualifications, furthered his understanding of the body from an academic side and accelerated his training methods and skills. This is quite a long bio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Side Monster tries to open the door to bodyweight training for beginners and maximize results for advanced athletes by creating effective and systematic training programs backed by scientific evidence and personal experience. Cool. So uh, now that we've got kind of that out of the way, uh, Simon, uh, does anybody ever actually like walk up to you and just be like, hey, what's up, Side Monster? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very occasionally, oh, but it happens. Yeah, and yeah. I guess I'm sure a lot of people ask you like where you get this nickname. Yeah, even I think you talked with it uh, with Dan. With Dan about this, yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure exactly who the name originated with, but um, my background is breakdancing, and we had some breakdancers from Japan uh, visit Australia in 2018 mm. and train with us, and um, someone was talking about me and was saying Simon and. Um, one of the Japanese guys said, oh, oh, Sai Monster. And um, that's how the name started, yeah. Oh, so a Japanese guy. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure exactly who it was, so I'd love yeah. to give credit um, if I knew, but yeah. I'm not exactly sure. One of the guys from Mortal Kombat Crew. More, oh, the, the crew's the, called Mortal yeah, Kombat the, Crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the breakdancing okay. crew in, yeah. in Japan. So. How, how are they ranked? Are they, they're pretty good. They're, right? they're very high level, yeah. yeah. I, I remember think most people in the breaking community know who they are. Yeah, there was uh, one, I, like, I mean, I lived in Korea a long time ago, but one year they had uh, the the breakdancing, like, world championships there, and I was just, like, unreal, like, watching these guys, yeah. like, compete. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, did you get to that point where you are competing at, like, the world stage? So, I, I did compete, uh, yeah. mostly around Australia. Mm. Um, and I judged some comps internationally. Um, but yeah, I competed at, at quite a high level, um, but I never did Battle of the Year, um, at least not internationally, mm-hmm. yeah. So what would, like, what generally for the Battle of the Year, is are those done, because the one the competition I saw was like, kind of, uh, like the teams were the countries, right? Yeah, so generally you have a Battle of the Year in each country, and mm-hmm. then the winner of that is flown to uh, an international final somewhere. Okay. Um, when I was, most active with breakdancing, it was uh, usually in Germany, yeah. and they'd have a final there where all the top crews from each individual country would compete. Okay, and then how would you characterize your style? Um, I would say it's mostly tricks and power moves. So the thing that's always um, drawn me to training is is trying to do spectacular skills that seem impossible. So mm-hmm. really challenging myself with athletic feats and things that things that are both hard and look cool. Yeah. So in in that endeavor. Are there certain things that you've come across where you maybe you initially thought that was just completely impossible? But yeah, then, definitely. I think yeah. most of the skills that I do now, yeah. um, back when I was um, a beginner or even intermediate in my craft, I thought that's impossible. It's, it's really cool that people can do it, but I, I never realistically thought I'd be able to do it. Mm-hmm. So examples of that are planche push-ups. Yeah. Um, some of the skills that I've, I've done, back when I started, I didn't even know that they existed or that they were possible. Mm-hmm. So um, I started breaking pretty early, and um, air flares were kind of new when I was starting. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could do air flares, you were considered quite elite. And then maybe six or seven years after that, we saw some people doing uh, one-handed air flares, and that blew my mind. And I thought, wow, that's ridiculous that people can <laughs> do that. You know, an air flare yeah. is, is. I thought an air flare was the pinnacle of a of human ability. Yeah. And now people are doing it on one hand. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, that's something that I achieved that I never thought was possible. No, I lo- I love the idea that like what we what we generally would cons- consider like the extent of our human capabilities or what do we consider normal, um, you know, 
like changing so dramatically. Yeah, definitely. And I think the internet has a has played a huge part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. it does remind me about like let's say for example the like the four minute mile. Yeah, I was just about to touch yeah. on that. The, the power of of belief that you can do something is quite. Um, yeah, and then as soon as you see one person, you know, do what most people would consider impossible at the time, and then how quickly so many other people, people do just, it. Yeah. So even, and we talked about this a little bit with Devin with regards to like even training programs and, and a mindset going yep. into your training. Um, for yourself, you ever get to a point where it's, um, you know, difficult to continue your, your training? I know a lot of people when they, you know, they're on a new training program, whatever, sometimes they just get... Uh, discouraged from like the amount of progress they're making or yeah definitely yeah i think everyone experiences peaks and troughs in motivation and um i definitely do um back when i was about 18 i i took a couple of years where i did little to no calisthenics and and breaking training and just did martial arts um before coming back to it a couple of years so you just completely did something different yeah i just went and did jujitsu four or five times a week and um (laughs) and did did calisthenics kind of as a secondary thing once a week, if that. Mm. Um, did very little breaking in that time. Um, then I had some pretty serious injuries through that and um, kind of went back to, to breaking at much safer, um, <laughs> yeah, much I safer think, art. Yeah, I definitely do think, like, there's definitely a lot of benefit into learning um, something like jiu-jitsu or wrestling. Yeah, I um, agree. I think I, it's, so, it's so real and it's so raw. There's no ways that you can cheat it. It's very easy to see what is effective and what isn't. Yeah. Um, it's two people competing in a, in a very primitive form. Mm. Um, whereas when it comes to breaking and calisthenics, it's a little bit more subjective. It's hard to say who the better person is. So I really like that rawness and realness of, of combat yeah. sports. Like whenever I hear about, um, I'm a big fit, like Joe Rogan fan. Yeah. So anytime he's like talking about jujitsu and his like wrestling, and it's, it's quite interesting to hear what like professional um fighters really think about particular fighting styles yeah and uh was there any particular reason why you chose to get into jiu-jitsu specifically yeah i think i just saw how effective and dominant it was so from from the <laughs> early early ufcs yeah. um i saw that the jiu-jitsu guys were extremely dominant and i went wow this is a, a great form this is a really effective martial art and something yeah. that i'd like to learn yeah, yeah I, and then I, I took a class and um, and I really saw that. You know, I had people half my size just dominate me and control me any way they wanted. Yeah. Um, and I thought, wow, this is something that I, <laughs> that I should learn. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, 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 yeah, that was funny. I remember like, even doing like the old school, like Greco Roman yeah. style wrestling. And uh, yeah, it's amazing like how much you could have, again, like someone who's like, a third of your size just destroy just you. Destroy yeah, you. the other it's thing, the other thing that really drew me to that is that you can compete at one hundred percent or close to one hundred percent without injuring each other. Mm. You know, it's not like um, it's not like say karate or boxing or muay thai where you, if you were to compete at one hundred percent every day, you would get extremely injured or you would get concussed. You'd have brain injury. Um, you can actually roll with someone in jujitsu. You can really see what's effective, what works, what doesn't work. Um, find out who's better. Really. Um, determine your progress um, honestly mm-hmm. whereas with uh, with other other combat sports you can't do that so when like what were some of the the bigger setbacks that you've had with regards to like your training like yes yeah, you, so you said I, you've had injuries yeah I think past, I think yeah. the biggest ones were injuries so yeah. uh, just about a month into training jiu-jitsu I was rolling with a guy maybe 40 kilograms heavier than me and it's quite quite big yeah, so that's, gap, gap yeah yeah it's like 90 pounds for, <laughs> for people in the USA um, and I dislocated my left shoulder um, ended up having a reconstruction I was in a sling for eight weeks where I couldn't do well that's a quite bad yeah pretty much anything and then I had to slowly um, do rehab and build my strength back up so yeah. there was a time there where I couldn't even lift my arm above my head mm-hmm. um, not due to restrictions I just physically didn't have the strength to lift my arm above my head after mm-hmm. eight weeks in a sling mm-hmm. um, that was a big setback um, I had a similar thing with my knee. I had a, a knee injury. Somebody tripped me up, and I had a meniscal tear in the knee that I, I flip off. Mm. So that set me set me back a, a great deal with yeah. in terms of tricking and flipping. Um, and I had half of my lateral meniscus removed um, with the subsequent surgery. And yeah, that was definitely a huge setback in my training. That's massive, man. I mean, what were your when you got hurt? Like, what were your initial reactions, or your how did your mindset change when? 
when you initially got hurt? Um, so with the shoulder, it was definitely very discouraging. Mm. Um, I had a lot of instability in my shoulder. I had a, a great um, portion of my skill set that I couldn't do. And I didn't actually know what was what was wrong with it. So I, I didn't dislocate my shoulder and say, yep, I've got a labral tear, I need it to be reconstructed. I just had this pain and a slight instability. I wasn't exactly sure what was wrong. So uh, you're still kind of functioning like relatively normal I, I, through I your... was functioning definitely at a lower level than I was prior to the injury. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but I was still functioning at a, a pretty high level. So I could still do handstands. Mm -hmm. I could still do air flares with some pain but there were definitely skills I couldn't do. So I couldn't do hollow backs. Um, my planche was just, just didn't quite feel right. And I had an MRI, it was inconclusive. It didn't really show much. So I had a, a kind of diagnostic arthroscopy planned. They found I'd torn my labrum. I needed a few anchors and had to get that reconstructed and stitched back to the bone. Wow. Yeah, so I wasn't really expecting to have a six month recovery after that surgery. Yeah. Um, and it turned out to be a six-month recovery when I woke up and the surgeon told me what was wrong with my shoulder. It was um, it was a bit of a shock and pretty mm. yeah. <laughs> so did that did that incident like with regards to your shoulder? Did it change anything with regards to your mindset with regards to your training? Yeah, it did. It definitely made me a lot more conservative in my training. So before that, I kind of had this, like, I'm indestructible, I can do anything. I think and we all kind of do. Yeah, definitely. As young men, yeah. we definitely have that mindset. Mm. And I'd never had a serious injury before, or definitely an injury that wouldn't heal on its own back to 100%. So when I had that, I thought, okay, maybe I should be a little bit more careful with jujitsu. I don't want to destroy my body. Um, and that's what really took me back to more calisthenics breaking and athletic um, disciplines where I'm in total control. Yeah. I think uh, <clears throat> going back to like, so the idea of like getting injured, particularly when you're young, like I, uh, when I played uh, American football for all the way through university and I think it was like uh, 20 or 21 and I tore my PCL. Yep. And uh, initially it was just like, it just felt like a rubber band. Like it just like, it was just very rubbery. And uh, as soon as I found out, like essentially it was like either get surgery or do like, I, I think I did less than a month of rehab and then I got a sports brace put on and then I just played the whole season with a sports brace. Um, but I think even in that environment, it's so weird. Like, um, and I think sometimes this can be something difficult for people when they're in like a, let's say in a, in a very high testosterone arena where, um, especially in America where it's like, everybody there is like oh don't be a you know don't be a pussy yeah, or totally. you know man up or yeah. and you kind of like just you end up just sucking it up to the most to your best of your ability and then um and I've, I've played a whole season with like fractured wrists and um yeah yeah it's it's it can be quite uh difficult in that social environment I yeah think. I, I agree yeah there's definitely a lot of social pressure and i think you succumb to that a little bit um a little bit more when you're young yeah and that's that's something I think jujitsu helped me with a lot um, was my confidence and um, I felt a lot a lot happier speaking up and standing up for myself after I'd done yeah after I'd done some jujitsu training um, yeah but I think it, I think most guys in their late 20s and 30s can relate to all the dumb stuff we did in our teens and our early 20s that we wouldn't do now mm. I look back at some of the things that I did and think I wouldn't do that that was stupid so in do you ever get feel like you're um, somewhat pressured with regards to like when you're doing it, like if you ever do, uh, doing a workshop or a seminar yeah. or performance, right? Where um, maybe even more performance related, but where you need to do, perform and yeah. uh, maybe you don't feel the best, you know, like how do you decide like to what extent you'll be able to Yeah, I, I used crap. to feel that pressure a lot. Yeah. Um, now I don't feel that so much because I've noticed that generally when you're performing um, or doing a show, you're performing to the general public. You're not performing to fellow ath athletes who do calisthenics or breakdancing or hand balancing. Yeah. And to a lot of people, they can't see a great deal of difference between doing a, a skill that takes 10 years to attain or doing a skill yeah. that takes a few years to attain. So my favorite example of this is a head spin. Mm. A head spin is a relatively simple and easy skill to achieve. Um, but it's really impressive, and the general public love that. Mm. Um, whereas you take a skill like air flares, it's also a very impressive skill, but um, people don't realize that it's much harder to learn than a head spin. So yeah. 
if I have to choose between the two, I usually go with the um, the the easier skill, um, which has more of an impact, which is is the head spin. Yeah. So now I found that in, in performing, I can really um, adjust my performance to how I'm feeling on the day. Yeah. Do things that. that oh, I think that's are, that's smart, man. Yeah. I mean, and also even having the awareness that you what would be what would be impressive for you doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do those movements to impress other people exactly I yeah that's and i think if you're performing at the true edge of your ability or you do a skill that's not consistent and as a result you sacrifice your form a little bit or you you, you crash and you fall short of achieving it um that is a lot worse than if you did a skill that you could do comfortably very clean and with great technique people love that mm. yeah another great example is the elbow lever if you do an elbow lever and people think wow that's incredible yeah and then you look at somebody do a full planche and they say that's cool but that the other person did it on one hand and looked relaxed yeah throughout, you know <laughs> yeah. um but yeah. there's there's a great disparity in in difficulty between yeah. those two skills no that's, that's very interesting and i i think um, and this is like what I love about talking with like just in any arena like high level practitioners because there's there are so many things that uh, we won't if we're not uh, highly interested in like we won't necessarily be able to tell the difference like yeah. I could look at um, you know a break dancer and, and be more of a normal person where like they could do almost anything and I'd be like wow that's amazing um, and then you look at the same person and just think it's you know average by by I don't know international standards yeah, um, yeah it becomes a little bit more esoteric when you get into kind of get deep into a discipline mm. but I think too when it comes to like let's say someone who is uh, new to an arena and they see like yourself like performing something like at a very high level their their initial perception is like oh I really want to if I want to be like that and be like Simon then I need to do the stuff that he's doing right now but not necessarily knowing that you know, you're doing the stuff you're doing now in your training, but you have 10 or 15 or whatever, 20 years of, of all this accessory work or all this work that you've done to build up to where you're at now. Yeah. Um, and I talked with a couple of uh, pro tennis players where a lot of people ask them, like, what are they doing now to help them in their training? But these are complete beginners who probably need to be doing what they did when they were in their teens. Yeah. Um, how would you maybe not... So do it in a way that essentially doesn't like discourage people from wanting to be able to do high-level movements. But how do you get people in the right mindset to focus more on, you know, maybe not as flair, yeah, the more yeah. fundamental stuff. Yeah, so this is something I wish I knew when I started training. But all the difficult skills have their foundations in more basic movements. And if you look at a planche, there, is, there are regression exercises that you can use for just about any ability level. Mm -hmm. So you can do a push-up position and lean forward slightly and you're training toward the planche. From there, you can take your feet off the ground and do a planche in a tuck position. You can extend the lever toward a, a straddle in a full position with increasing difficulty. And in the same way that you progress to lift more weights, you do sets and reps at a certain weight. Over time, you overload and you progress to lifting more and more weight. It's similar with calisthenics training. Um, it's just not as intuitive and it's a little bit more complicated in how you progress with that. So I think um, for beginners, I think if you are training at a, at a difficulty level which is challenging for you but still achievable, uh, you will make progress. Mm. Yeah. So I think the, the most encouraging words I can give are set small milestones along the way. So when you look at something like a planche, it, it, does, seem, it does seem very out of reach. And if you were to just walk, work towards achieving a full planche with no milestones to achieve along the way, it's very easy to become demotivated and discouraged and to give up. Yeah. Whereas if you set small milestones to tick off along the way, it's a great way to track progress, to keep you in, encouraged and keep you motivated um, as you work towards that. So for example, you can do a, a push-up, lean forward three inches for five seconds. You might increase that to 10 seconds, 15 seconds, then you might be able to do a tuck planche. Yeah. And, and following that, um, that method, you'll be able to get to a planche. Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. Not, uh, a lot of people don't realize that all of these skills, um, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. People didn't, <laughs> didn't go from doing nothing to doing planche. There's yeah. a lot of steps between. Mm. So, so you're here in, in Bali, and we're, we're going to do this uh, training camp coming up soon. Um, but with regards to, like, your own training you know, and in your lifestyle, because um, you tend to travel quite a bit for yeah. your performances and other workshops and such, how do you maintain some semblance of, uh, 
like regular like structure. Just, <laughs> yeah, structure. Yeah. Um, so I follow a um, somewhat flexible training program, um, depending on my goals at the time. Yeah. Um, and I just try to stay consistent with that. The great thing about the disciplines that I do and the skills that I work towards is you need very little equipment. Mm -hmm. So if I'm stuck in a hotel room, I can still do a very effective training session. I can do handstand push-ups. I can work on some hand balancing. If I have a simple pull-up bar, I can do um, I can do front lever work or, right. and one-arm pull-up work and still get a, a really good workout in. So how do you how do you get some? So if you use the word like flexible, like I have a flexible training program, I, I always uh, kind of think of when people were talking about like flexible dieting yeah. and then there was the whole like if it fits my macros thing and yeah. then they kept then people kept pushing the edge to be like oh i can just eat anything that I want, I want to and yeah. just do what i want um how would you say like how would you promote like flexible or yeah flexible training but to do it in a way that wouldn't that some people wouldn't just like take it to the extreme of being like yeah i, I don't i don't know yeah no i, yeah, I understand yeah. the question <laughs> um so I like to auto-regulate where possible. Mm. Um, when I say flexible, I, I like to use the word flexible rather than relaxed. So I still train very hard, but where possible, I like to auto-regulate things. So for example, I don't time my rest period between every set yeah. and say I need to do two to three minutes between the sets or I need to do two minutes between a set and, and get back to training as but soon as But did you ever passes. do that though? No, I never did that. Never? No. Wow. <laughs> um, um, and the... I kind of I find that auto regulating um, still allows me to fit within the kind of guidelines that people give for for training. So you know, mm -hmm. between strength sets, they might say rest three to five minutes. And if I auto regulate, I do fall within that. But it's just one less thing that I have to worry about in my training. Um, so right now, I do a kind of push pull split with my training. I try to do two sessions of um, pushing work a week, so things like planche and handstand push ups, mm -hmm. and two sessions of pulling work a, a week, so things like front lever and, um, and chin-ups. Mm. Um, and as long as I kind of get those in, I think it's fine to auto-regulate that. Um, so one day, you know, if, I've, if I'm jet-lagged, so for example today, I'm jet-lagged, it took me 30 hours to travel here. Yeah. And, um, and you try to stay awake as long as you could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if I don't feel like doing intense handstand push-ups and doing a, a strength session today, yeah. I might reduce the intensity and do more of a kind of hypertrophy session train with a little bit higher volume mm. um it's more comfortable for me and it allows me to 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 do that without becoming still get some work in. yeah exactly yeah. still get some work in and still be happy about it rather yeah. than saying i have to do this and getting and resenting my yeah. training and so we also talked a little bit about like uh last night about your like eating habits you know yeah. i think uh, we find a lot of people in the fitness industry that are very like strict or very um dogmatic in the way they approach both the fitness training component and also nutrition but yeah. you tend to have a very flexible yeah I'm, I'm definitely more structured with my physical training than I am with my nutrition so I yeah. try to eat a cheesecake healthy and... balanced lifestyle I do love <laughs> yeah. cheesecake um, yeah I, I try to eat generally healthy foods mm. um, I would roughly how would you characterize healthy though I would say I, I roughly follow the Australian Dietetics Guidelines if I'm asked about that. So, okay. you know, I eat a lot of grains, I eat a lot of vegetables, I try to um, not eat a lot of processed foods. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm not strict on that. If I want to eat some chocolate or some cheesecake, I will do it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, this, th there's uh, one guy that we had here, his name is Joachim, and he's a big mobility specialist. And uh, he talk he's, he's from Belgium, but... Like the Belgium uh, health uh, minister is like one of the most like obese people I've ever met. It's weird. It's weird that she is um, in charge of this whole health industry. Yeah. But uh, so the point that I'm trying to bring up is that there tends to be a lot of people now like in the health and fitness wellness industry that don't really live up to the to the part of like their lifestyle is not in any way, shape, or form like. You would think this is like a healthy person, yeah. but they're in charge of this entire health industry, right? Oh, the, like for her, she's of the Belgium. face of the face the, of health in Belgium. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you see? Do you see a lot of stuff nowadays, like in like social media, and a lot of people that claim to be part of you know health and wellness, but you feel like maybe they're not promoting the right, the right things. Yes, I think there's. Um, 
I think the big thing with that is you see a lot of fads and mm. you see a lot of people who have black and white thinking. You can't eat any carbs, but you need carbs for energy. Um, eat a lot of protein, but don't eat too much protein. Get some sunlight for vitamin D, but it also gives you skin cancer. Yeah. Um, and people, <laughs> yeah, so people, yeah. people have a, um, people tend to have a very black and white approach and I don't think anything in life is like that. Mm. And when you, when you really look at things more deeply, it's a lot more nuanced than that. So I'd be very, um, I would just have a lot of skepticism when you see a, a really black and white approach to something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think the whole, um, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of really amazing things that come with, uh, you know, obviously the internet and social media the way it is now. I mean, we're all able to, you know, be able to pr promote ourselves in a much more expansive way, I think. Uh, but I think the stuff that you put out, you know, it's, it's very informative. And I think, like, of course, like, seeing the amazing things, again, uh, part of seeing your amazing uh, feats of uh, physical strength and abilities, you know, might be able to uh, encourage someone who thinks of the impossible and maybe they'll eventually do what you do or who knows, maybe in the future they'll be able to do more than, you know, what we can currently do. Um, one thing um, with regards to like setting the proper environment or culture, right? So like, have you ever been in an environment where it wasn't conducive to your the lifestyle you wanted to live, and was it was it difficult to get out of that? Um, yeah, I, I have been in environments which I don't think are, are too conducive to to my goals. Mm -hmm. um, I've trained with a lot of people who had very dogmatic ways of thinking, and um, especially when I was young, had people say, you know, rest no more than thirty seconds between sets. It, it's what you need to get a yeah. an optimal hormonal environment to to <laughs> to build muscle. Yeah, and um, it seems that's very specific. Yeah, and yeah. you know, at at, at um, and that was something I was told when I was like fifteen or sixteen. I didn't know very much about um, about exercise principles, and I just thought that doesn't really make sense. If mm -hmm. I rest thirty seconds between sets, my second, third, fourth sets are not very effective, and yeah. <laughs> the quality of those sets is diminished a lot um, and then as I learned more and more now we know that that's not true and mm. <laughs> that's not really most conducive to strength and, and size um, I always like to question things and um, I think as I got older I built more confidence to say well you know I don't think that's justified can you show me why I should do that can you give me some rationale behind it still have an open mind but not just accept everything that I'm told by, um, by other people no, I but I think that's a good approach to to learning in general, right? Is that I mean, there's just yeah, so to many question things. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. And I think as uh, I mean, as as a leader in the industry, you know, and um, I think any high level coach, right? Like even encouraging students to actually question like what they are being taught, um, and creating an environment where they're able to some because there's definitely some high level coaches is like don't question anything that I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. And. Uh, I think that too is a is a big red red flag. Definitely a red yeah. flag. Yeah. Is there anybody now you think, or besides yourself, you know, like um, very influ influential leaders in in calisthenics? Um, I think there's a lot of great people in calisthenics. Yeah. Um, I think Daniel's great, who's at the workshop. Mm -hmm. I think these guys from calisthenics movement are great. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's definitely some some good people online. I really like Mikhail. Um, Mikhail Balancing is his Instagram mm -hmm. handle. He ha he puts out really great information and challenges dogmatic teachings in terms of hand balancing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are those are people I really respect in the industry. Okay, so to One, maybe yeah, to, to backtrack onto that question, yeah. another thing um, that I found is in Australian culture, especially, there's very much a kind of um, there's a big culture of kind of being negative with your friends and. And putting them down and um, just generally, like, yeah, just among friends, and it's okay. very lighthearted, and it's yeah. like, come on, you pussy, and like, you know, you dickhead, <laughs> yeah. why would you do that? Yeah. Um, and then when I moved to the states, I kind of found the culture there's a little bit different, and it's a lot more uplifting. You know, when you say you you want to do something, yeah. rather than um, getting shut down by your friends, you have um, you have people who are like, that's great, yeah, go for it. I think you can you can do that. It's, yeah. like, it's a lot more uplifting culture. And I've found that is a lot more conducive to progress. Okay. Um, that's something I really like um, about the United States and a, mm. a little bit of a cultural difference. Um, the friends that I train with in Australia tend to be a lot more positive and, and uplifting. And um, 
yeah, I, I try to stay away from those kind of negative environments. So yeah. that's something I've, I've found has really helped my training as well. Okay. Yeah. And you've been in the States for how long now? I've been there for four years. And yeah, what are some other, some other differences that you, you kind of experienced while you were there? Guns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guns in the States? Well, um, you're, you've been specifically in Las Vegas the whole time? Yeah, I've been predominantly in Las Vegas. I've done a little bit of travel, um, yeah. but predominantly based in Las Vegas. Definitely a lot of guns yeah. in America, for sure. Yeah. Did you ever get one yourself? Or no. Did you ever go shooting? No, I've never gone shooting. No? No. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's like I'm, American pastime. You yeah, experience I, I think that that's something I, that is something I want to do before I leave. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty anti-gun, but I would like to do that before I go. There's definitely, um, I went one time, like I never really shot any guns, and then my cousin and uncle took me out and it's weird it's not depending on the gun obviously but it's not as you always see like in um in the movies when they're like shooting like a magnum like you know 45 and it's just like massive and it's just like big kickback whatever but yeah i didn't i didn't feel like it was like it felt like it was that as big as like it's expressed in movies and stuff yeah. even shooting like big rifles but uh, I think it's definitely an interesting experience. Maybe for that's sure. just a sign of your strength rather than. Oh, yeah, I could, yeah. Be, I could be just super strong. <laughs> yeah, because sure. I had some friends who went <laughs> shooting last week and yeah. um, they shot a shotgun and had bruises on their shoulder from the kickback. Yeah, so, I've heard of yeah. that happening. Yeah, maybe they need to work on their shoulders. It's not, not something I can relate to at all. <laughs> I've never shot a gun. No. Yeah, but there are some other cultural differences. Um, in Australia, we don't tip. That's a big thing in the United States. I personally, man, I just I hate how. I like the original intention of what tipping was supposed to be, right? Like, was you would you would show appreciation for someone who's gone be above and beyond, like their Call of Duty. Yeah. Um, I think it's gotten a little bit out of hand. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Because yeah. like now it's That's like definitely not the culture now. It's you have to tip no matter what. Yeah, it's so weird, and it's like and it's it's increased. Like I remember like 15 years ago where it was like you tip no matter what, but it was only like maybe 10 percent. Yeah. Now, now it's 20 it's like, is a standard. Yeah, 20 yeah. is a standard and. Man, it, it gets it definitely gets uh, real expensive eating out. Yeah. Yeah. So tipping in guns. Yeah, tipping in guns the big one. Healthcare, education. Yeah, we ones. love our pills. You do love we, your pills. We love yeah. our pills. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a yeah <laughs> the um <laughs> the pharmaceutical ads. Uh, I so I think about advertisements and I and I think of most uh, those countries you can go to. I do feel like if you go to any particular country and you look at the commercials of any of that country, you can kind of get a good sense of like, what are some of the things that are not necessarily like valued, but there's a high level of, uh, of, of commercialism within that particular industry, right? So like in America, you see like pharmaceuticals, uh, you see obviously like beer yep. commercials, you see a lot of sports. Yeah. Um, and oh, and auto loans. Loans, yes. yes. Yeah, I see a lot of loans. Well, stuff. that's another cultural difference. I don't know if this is Vegas or a United States thing, but you see signs everywhere you drive. Um, did you get a parking ticket? Hire this attorney. Oh, the attorney stuff yeah. now. I think that kind of made an explosion uh, after the McDonald's, the the lady who got burnt by McDonald's coffee. You ever heard of this? No, I haven't. So, But before that, that's one more cultural difference I'll add, is I think people in the United States tend to sue each other a lot more than <laughs> in Australia. So the the story of the, like why there's like now on the coffee cups, on the plastic lid, there's like caution hot. Yeah. There never used to be that. It's coffee. But, yeah, I know. <laughs> but so there was no like warning on the, on the lid. So she like, she spilled the coffee on herself and she like sued McDonald's because she, she burnt herself. Hot. She burnt herself. She didn't know it was hot or it was too hot. And uh, so, she, so she won, right? And uh, and so then that was like, was the start of like just this massive culture of just suing everybody for something that got hurt. Yeah, was, like, I, I stories. caught myself shaving. You didn't say it was sharp. It's, right. Yeah. And there was like uh, people like burglars like breaking somebody's house and breaking their leg because they tripped over a toy and then suing the people of the ho the ownership of the house because yeah, they got insane. hurt. Like stuff like that. And it's just, I don't, uh, yeah, it just, it's crazy. That culture, yeah, gotta get away from it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, going to other maybe other aspects of, of your life, yeah. yeah. Besides like fitness and and performance, what are you doing your free time? Like, do you read books? Do you go yeah. long walks on the beach? You. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't do many long walks on the beach. No. Um, but I do like books. I like reading, um, especially nonfiction books. 
I like listening to podcasts. Um, I like nature, so I spend a lot of time visiting nat- national parks. Mm. Um, Any particular ones in the states that you really enjoy? I loved Yosemite. Oh, okay, yeah, I've heard. I really think Yosemite good was was definitely a favorite. Yeah, um, Zion's beautiful as well. They're all beautiful. There's a lot of great national parks. Mm. Um, yeah, Maybe yeah. next time you come, there's one uh, up north in Bali. There's like a massive national park. Cool. But there's a lot of like really cool hiking stuff. There's lots of cool stuff. nature yeah, around here, yeah, waterfalls and things. I mean, yeah. Bali, some people think of, uh, this is a funny thing about geography in, in, in Americans, right? Is like, they might, they'll think that Bali is the actual country and then like Indonesia is like inside Bali or some yeah. weird stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but Bali, yeah, it's, it's massively bigger, it's much bigger than, um, than most people kind of expect. Because they kind of just go to like Kuta or something yeah, like and tourist spots, tourist spots, right? Yeah, but yeah, it, for sure, if you come back next time or when you come back next time, um, yeah, if you had some time, there's definitely tons of stuff to do up north. Yeah, that'd be which great. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, I like topics like philosophy and psychology. Yeah. Um, I play chess a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not at not at a high level. I just enjoy it. Have you ever done like just for fun, like join a like a chess tournament or anything no like I just play with friends usually yeah, yeah. for money and not for money <laughs> I'll, I'll start doing that um, but I, like, I drink a lot of coffee I cook a little bit I like food yeah yeah. I like I like experiencing you have a go to go to food dish like let's say you're gonna like invite a lady over what would you what would you cook that would depend on the lady yeah yeah I um I'd probably cook um cook kafta or a Middle Eastern dish, lamb oh, kind of burgers. Sweet. Yeah, that's a favorite of mine. Okay. Yeah. Where'd you learn to do that? Um, so my background, my dad's Palestinian, so that's okay. that's where I learned that. He taught you? Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. That's pretty legit, man. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, that's, I think this is, uh, so this kind of brings up a... a I, I would say my, mo- my mother taught me, but, um, but she would have learned from the influence from my dad and his family. So yeah. Like. <laughs> so she probably tried the recipe in, in many different ways, but they were the critics that helped her make adjustments to the recipe. I think my um, my dad's mother came to Australia and lived with us for some time. Yeah. And my mom learned a lot of Middle Eastern recipes from her. Yeah. And then I learned through my mom and my dad. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this brings up a, a thought in my head with regards to like, sometimes um you know maybe something for your like just for yourself you're looking at your own life you don't might not think of it as like a uh, an interesting point of conversation but i think like even just like this is actually really cool i like the point you bring up about your your background and like the cooking and yeah um, because i think a lot of people you know obviously they're mostly only seeing your the the performance stuff and the fitness stuff but seeing like that you're having all these like really um, quite uh, large variation of interests. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just even, even giving the whole uh, oh he's like a normal person kind of uh, <laughs> understanding. Yeah. He's not just a sci monster Superman. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. No, which is really 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 cool. Uh, is there anything in particular you're reading now? Um, right now I'm not I'm not reading anything. Yeah, I just yeah. finished uh, The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. He's oh, my I favorite. love Sam Harris. Yeah, he's my favorite author by far. Yeah. Um, Did you, have you uh, watched any of the YouTube videos with uh, Christopher Hitchens? Yeah, yeah. Man, uh, yeah, I wish Hitchens I would have seen great. that guy live. Yeah, yeah he's great. Yeah, yeah, I wish he was still alive. It would be great. Mm. Yeah, but I, I really like Sam Harris's kind of clarity of thought and his rationale for everything. You kind of look a little bit like Sam Harris, I think. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Like Ben Stiller. <laughs> Do you get Ben Stiller much? No, I never get that. I know oh. Sam Harris gets Ben Stiller a lot. <laughs> oh, does yeah. he? Yeah. Oh, okay. They, okay, they look okay. the same. <laughs> Dude, I have to take a look yeah, at Yeah, you'll that have again. to. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, but I, I like Christopher Hitchens yeah. um, as well. Um, yeah, that kind of circle. Yeah. Do you, do you have many conversations in um, philosophy and religion with people you meet yeah a lot yeah yeah would would you have do you have conversations about religion in america though um i pick my battles yeah yeah i yeah. think it's I, quite interesting yeah there's there's things that i've learned um not to touch so you know generally inflammatory topics like religion and politics are, are things that i try to stay away from unless yeah. it's somebody that i feel will 
have an honest discussion with me with an open mind. I think mm. a lot of people um, who have opposing ideas treat it as kind of um, a battle for victory rather mm. than trying to reach a consensus on what is actually true. Yeah. Um, so I think if I think if you're not actually going to have a a productive conversation, then what's the point? And yeah. I found the same thing with talking about guns in the United States. I learned very quickly <laughs> that yeah. that some people you can give there's no reason you can give that it doesn't involve a good guy with a gun yeah um, <laughs> um as a solution um yeah no to, it's uh, to gun homicides yeah it's quite interesting i mean especially the uh, some of the arguments you know like you know we shouldn't uh do anything to keep guns from the bad guys we should just keep giving more guns to the good guys. yeah yeah give the toddlers guns and yeah that's yeah, yeah. a that's yeah. a nuts one like there's like a massive amount. It's like un, like un, um, unbelievable amount of uh, parents that get shot by their toddlers um, because guns are getting yeah. Laid, left well, if you gave right. the parents guns, they could have protected themselves, themselves from the toddlers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's something um, that I probably shouldn't have spoken about on a podcast that will be public. But um, it's I think that's a very inflammatory topic as well, especially in the United States. So I try yeah. not to have that conversation. Um, unless I feel somebody is going to um, is going to treat that conversation honestly and yeah. have an open mind and and genuinely be open to changing their opinion. Yeah, but I th- I think this, but just uh, so even getting away from religion and, and guns and yeah, yeah. and uh, inflammatory um, topics. Yeah. Like even that I like it's but you think of even nutrition now has become such a. Um, a conversation of de- like massive debate where people are just exactly, like so yeah. like dogmatic in their way yeah, of thinking. So they, yeah, so that comes back to this is one reason why I am very relaxed with um with nutrition, and I mm. think I am one. I definitely have a better understanding of um, exercise principles than I do of nutrition. Yeah. So um, where things have been shown to be better and in, in training, I I try to utilize that. Yeah. Um, but I found with nutrition there are very few things that experts in the field have a consensus on. Mm. So you can talk to one doctor or nutritionist, um, let's say dietitian, I think they're the people that you should be talking to when you get um, nutrition advice. Right. But you can speak to different nutritionists who will tell you two different things, uh, or two, sorry, different dietitians who will tell you two different things um, okay. about what you should be doing. And I found um, a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the people I really respect, a lot of the dietitians I really respect do have a very laid back approach to eating. Mm. And you, you do a lot of intuitive eating and I, I think that's great. And it's very sustainable. So that's why I do it. It, it. it improves my quality of life. I'm generally happier when I do that than sticking to a rigid diet. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't feel I would get much of a benefit from having a strict diet. Yeah, it does uh, I mean, make a lot of sense. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that are looking for uh, like the perfect diet or the perfect way of doing something, but you know, even if they were to find it, were to find this uh, perfect solution to their problems, like probably wouldn't stick with it yeah, at the all. The other thing is, you can have a perfect, um, in quotation marks, you can have a, a perfect solution. Yeah. Um, so you see this a lot with exercise science mm-hmm. studies. You might have something which is on average better for, you know, A is better than B on average for a population. If you change the population, you might see the other way around. Then you have individuals within groups that respond better to B than to A. Yeah. Um, so even if you have a, a solution which is better on average for a population, it doesn't mean it's better for the individual. Yeah. Um, and that might change at different times for that individual as, as well. Mm. So I just don't think things are as black and white as people often say they are. Have you have you delved much into like Eastern philosophy with regards to health, nutrition, exercise? Uh, like even when you meet, like let's say the guys from Japan, are they approaching, you know, their craft and breakdancing differently than the way? Not really. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. When you say Eastern philosophy, you mean with regards to Asians? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. in any in any in any arena. Um, um, with things like meditation and mindfulness, I have, mm. um, but otherwise not really. To answer the question with breakdancing, I think it's a very similar culture. I found that um, one of the reasons that the guys in Japan were so good was they just practice really hard and they practice often. Mm. It's a high quality of practice and they do it a lot and that's why they, 
they have yeah, it's into fine. Like in, when I was in Korea, a lot of uh, Koreans they'll generally like when they pick, choose something to do, they just go ham. They go like, yeah, they just yeah. put all their energy and it's into awesome. it. Yeah, mm. I found that in in China as well. I taught a workshop in China earlier this year, and I was just blown away at the level that that some of the people there had. Mm. Um, and I, I think I, I remember seeing a couple of those videos where you just they look like totally just normal people, and they're just like just and they're insane, yeah. yeah. And I I was thinking, how have I not heard of you? You're incredible. Um, how long have you been training? And they're like, oh, three years. <laughs> You've achieved in three years. Yeah. What took me twenty? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, but I think at the end of the day, that um, the reason you see that is because they work really hard and they're consistent, mm. and as a result, they get the results. Mm. Cool, man. No, that's definitely quite interesting. I think uh, I've been trying to get a little bit more studying into like just generally Eastern philosophy, and there's one. I talked with a few people who are into like qigong and and more eastern um alternative medicine that you know we'll call it but there tends to be a lot of things that are especially now in western philosophy that tends to be very similar or almost this exact same thing but it tends to be just uh, an issue with ling linguistical semantics yeah um so even like the idea of flow right where i think a lot of people in america and western culture would think of it as kind of a relatively new phenomenon but, I mean, a lot of extreme athletes get this get this sense of flow where they're just they're not even thinking. They're just like doing, 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 doing. Um, in your in your performances, do you hit this kind of level of flow where you just you don't even think about what comes next? You just kind of like doing things in a split second, or no, not really. No, <laughs> no. no. I find that sometimes, especially with um, with power moves. Mm. Um, people have often asked me, so you, you just did a 20 move combo, how did you know what move was going to come next? And generally I have the first few moves of the set planned out, they're generally the hardest moves that I'll place at the start, and then yeah. after that I'm just doing combinations that I know. So okay. there's not much thought to it then, I guess you could say that's flow, but yeah. um, not really sure. But did you, would you ever, maybe, have you ever in the middle of a performance changed your routine while it's going on? Like, just because you felt, like, usually, like, like while you're performing, like, wow, I felt really good, I'm just going to do this, and you just did it. Um, not from memory, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not, not in a split second. Definitely had days where I went prior to the performance, yeah, I feel really good, I'll, I'll do a harder variation today. Mm. Um, and I've had days where I felt really bad, and I thought I'll do something really easy, but I can't think of a split second change no. that I've done. So you, I mean, you obviously are performing and practicing and training things at a, at a much higher level than I would say your average person. Uh, are there, what would you consider or deem essentially impossible now that you would hope to possibly achieve? Do you have a mana? No, I don't have a mana. Um, that's a, a, a long and lonely road and I don't think I have the mobility for it. It's definitely mm -hmm. not a goal of mine. I don't think it's something I will achieve in my lifetime. I don't have a desire to practice yeah. it. Um, are you talking about as a general population or for no myself? for yourself for yourself um, so something so a few things that I've been working on lately are increasing my pulling strength so mm -hmm. I've had my background has been breakdancing and most of the strength that is conducive to that is pushing strength so for the fast, last 15 years I've done predominantly pushing like handstand push-ups and planche and that's definitely where I excel uh, my weakness or one of my weaknesses is pulling strength so things like front lever and one arm chin-ups mm -hmm. so those are things I would like to improve I'd like to have some solid front lever pull-ups and a solid um, one arm chin-up or pull-up on each arm for reps uh, another thing that I think is realistic and something that I should work to improve is my hand balancing so I definitely don't have uh, very good technique with my hand balancing it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of but I think even in just saying that, when most people look at your account, they'll be like, oh, how are you How are you not good at hand balancing? You seem like such a, a dynamic Yeah, so I think individual. if you spoke to um, a high-level hand balancer, it becomes very salient. Mm -hmm. um, or if you look at the difference between me and a high-level hand balancer, they can stay on one arm in a static position with nice lines for a long period of time and change shapes kind of limited to a straddle, my arms bent. That's my position of comfort. That's what I've trained for years. So I would like to refine that a little bit and be able to do some 
you know, a straight body, full position with good technique. Yeah. I think that's something that's achievable and something I should work towards. Yeah. I think that's uh, quite interesting. Like, I think though you have, you know, this kind of more, more than I would say the average person with regards to like being more intuitive with the how you train, um, but also, you know, even having conversations with you, like you think of what you're doing, even though it's, you know, it seems intuitive, like you think of things on a very detailed level, um, yeah. which I think is very, that's one of the biggest, com- like the most common things that I see among all the, like the, the individuals that we've had come on the podcast, you know, whatever their f- field is. So like the, uh, the flare bartenders, when they're talking about mixology and um, one guy I met at a competition, he was, he's based in Poland and he was talking about how there's like over a thousand different vodkas in Poland and every single vodka has a completely different taste. And like me as an average, maybe a consumer of liquor, like I, there's no way I would be able to tell the difference. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> so do you, you also drink um, alcohol? I do drink alcohol. Yeah, yeah. anything in particular, drink, I guess an American would ask if you, if you drink Fosters. If I drink Fosters, no, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a big misconception. Or we talked about the Bloomin' Onion thing, right? The yeah, that's, day, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a big misconception. I don't think anyone in Australia drinks Fosters. Is it not? It's not popular at I, all. I don't think it's, it, I don't even know if it's in Australia or if we just export it. Oh, it's not there at all? I'm not sure. That or I wouldn't or, know. I've or, never or been Or if Australia. it is there, it's definitely very rare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't drink Fosters. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, my favorite beer in Australia is uh, Little Creatures Pale Ale. Is that a microbrew? Yeah, it's a little brewery in Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. They do a different, uh, I guess a whole different line of beers, huh? In Australia? Or that company? Uh, I'm not or sure. Is it just yeah, that I'm one? Not not too sure. I just drink sure. Pale Ale. You just drink Pale Ale. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not a big consumer of beer. I'm definitely not like a beer enthusiast. Yeah. But yeah, I like to have a, a social drink from time yeah. to time. This reminds me of uh, so one of our uh, one of our coaches uh, who teaches Olympic weightlifting, and he's a former national team coach or national athlete from China. Yep. And he's the current Singapore national team coach. But whenever we train with him and we like we go out to dinner, he's so, so he's originally from from China, and like he just drinks massive amounts of beer, and yeah. it's hilarious. And then he'll always just be like, "You got to drink more beer; it's going to give you power." And he's like half joking, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. But uh, I remember my business partner, he went to like a two-week uh, training camp in China for Olympic weightlifting. He'd just be like, every night, they're just drinking massive amounts of beer. And he couldn't understand um, the, the, the idea or the thought process um, behind it. But the studying or training in China uh, is, I think, is quite interesting because there's just so much stuff that happens in Eastern practice that's not put into like textbooks or in videos where you just like can easily access them. Um, are there any an example of, well, like Chinese weightlifting techniques and the exercises they would do. Um, there's, there's things that coach Wu would teach us in, in Olympic weightlifting in, our, in the seminars here that, um, with regards to, uh, one of the videos I'll show you later, but he talks about the entire movement of Olympic weightlifting as purely as like a, a dance movement as like the fluidity of everything. It's very cool and it's kind of have like a very Bruce Lee-esque um, philosophy in the way they, they treat the movement. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, like having that opportunity to learn from different high-level practitioners in so many different arenas, even if it's something uh, similar to what you do, uh, if they're from a different country, they might have like a, a different um, approach. Um, has there been Anything uh, that sticks out to you that you've learned from other high-level practitioners that's helped you in your in your uh, nothing that stands out. I yeah. think with that one thing that I've learned is that you can achieve the same result in many different ways. Mm. So you'll see if you look at all the high-level athletes in any field, you generally see similarities, but you don't see them doing the exact same program. I don't think there's a, p- a perfect approach for everybody. Um, and it just goes to show you that things aren't as um, as black and white as they're often coming back to that point, right. as is often said, and that you can do something many different ways and get the same result. You can program many different ways. You can practice many different ways. So I, w- I would think that maybe some people would hear that and they, they would they would almost they would hear um, that it it doesn't matter who you choose as a coach to so. 
But I think if, if someone, coach, yeah, yeah, so if uh, if someone was wanting to decide like who they would decide or what kind of program would they want to choose, yeah. how would they go about choosing a coach or a program? Maybe having some general guidelines that they can follow with regards to their vetting process. Yeah, um, what would you what would you say to someone like that? So I think um, you should have some. So being a, a good practitioner doesn't make you a good coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a good coach, you, to be a good coach, you don't necessarily have to be a good practitioner. I find it usually helps if you find somebody who can do both because they've experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, they can empathize with you a little bit better. I would find somebody who has produced good students and who has good rationale, who's happy to have questions and answer questions, who welcomes questions. Mm-hmm. I think the thing I would stay away from is somebody who is very dogmatic in their thinking who doesn't want you to ask questions, that's a huge red flag, as we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But if you have somebody who's coached people, they've um, had good results with the people that they've coached, and they're open to questions, their philosophy or the rationale makes sense to you, they're probably a good person to coach you. Sounds like a pretty like, legit pretty answer. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, even... I mean, even that yeah, response to, is very logical. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. To go back to the, the point about having many ways to do something, that's that's a bit difficult because when you have somebody who's new to a field and they want to learn something, they often do want a very structured program and they want to be told about how, what position should my fingers be in, yeah. uh, what position should my elbows be in, how many reps should I do, should I do six or should I do eight? And when it comes down to it, it probably doesn't matter. If you're doing three sets of six or you're doing three sets of eight, yeah. at the end of the day, you're gonna get very similar results. Yeah. You might buy a strength a little bit more um, by doing six reps versus eight reps or yeah. doing six RM versus an eight RM. But at the end of the day, you, you do get very similar results, but some people just really wanna be told yeah. you know, exactly what to do. Yeah. And I think a good coach will know that and mm. know that there are many different ways to do something. Results are often blended. You can program in a number of different ways. You can do full body every day. You can do push-pull splits. You can do upper-lower splits. And um, if you match for things like volume and intensity, you can probably get a, a similar result mm. um, ultimately with any of those programs. Yeah. Um, I think a, a good coach will know that mm. and, um, and also be able to guide you in a manner that is, um, that is effective. One more thing with um, good coaches. I think a good coach should um, be understanding of your preferences as well. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if your program is optimal if it's not followed. Mm. So I think a good coach will listen to you, will have good rapport with you, um, understand your goals, understand your preferences in your training, and um, design your program around that. Yeah. I think they should be flexible. I think... Uh like everything you're saying is quite logical and I think it makes a, a ton of sense. And it's it's amazing to to me like whenever you even like speak with somebody and you were to tell someone who's like new to the industry or maybe they've experienced like 20 other coaches and, uh, and then you just give them a very like thoughtful, like logical response to something, they're kind of almost amazed that you would even speak in that manner because I think there's a lot of places where like we had a, we've actually had a couple of members who walked in and like as soon as they walk in off the street they're like okay if I train with you for two months like where am I going to be and expect actually expecting like a real like answer in that like okay in two months we're going to get yeah. you like I, I get those, I get the same question Simon how long is it going to take me to do a planche <laughs> you know, I can straddle plan. Yeah. I, I can tuck planche now. How long is it going to take me to do a straddle planche? Yeah. And there are so many factors which affect that. There's huge variance between individuals. Yeah. Even if you gave them the same program, two different people will respond differently. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it it sucks to just give an answer like, well, I don't know, somewhere between like a few months and never. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah. it's it's nice yeah. to give kind of a guideline yeah. um, where possible. So yeah. you say. Well, a lot of people that I've coached have achieved a straddle planche um, starting at zero in a year. Mm. Um, that might be a, a good kind of guideline. But that being said, there is variation and it, it, it could change um, plus or minus a few months. Right, yeah. just a few months. It could change a great deal, but yeah. yeah. But to, to, just to show you, it's it's not that simple. Mm. This is a good starting point, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, and uh, I think other thing that's like very uh, important for like good coaches is 
to even if they you go through the initial uh, like assessment process and you find a good starting point you set really good goals uh, but uh, you know ideally through that process like you you're continuing the assessment process you're continuing the uh, like adjusting the program to to fit how maybe someone is progressing much faster than you originally thought yeah so you would need to uh, make adjustments to the program yeah that's one thing I've definitely learned over time is that somebody's performance does not reflect does not always reflect their work ethic mm. you know you can coach one person who um, who does everything by the book works really hard and they just don't respond as well as an, as another person mm. Um, so yeah, there is huge variation between individuals, even with the same program. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, yeah. Though it can be very simple, it it also can be extremely quite, complicated. Extremely complicated. Yeah. And I think that's maybe for especially if you're not uh, if you're relatively new to the industry or new to calisthenics, like that can be a very kind of frustrating. Um, yeah, definitely. Thing. Yeah, as we said before, beginners want something, you know, some people just want to have everything laid out. Mm. I need rest time between sets. I need to know how many reps. Yeah. Um, and then some people can take a lot more of a relaxed approach. Yeah. Does, yeah. Is there any particular type of student that you you generally, ex like, accept for, like, one, like longer one training, one-to-one coaching. One coaching and stuff? Or I think if, if somebody genuinely has a, an interest to learn and progress, I'm happy to accept them. Mm. Yeah. Cool. But there's no, yeah, I I like to coach everybody. I'm happy to coach beginners. I'm happy to coach advanced athletes. I'm happy to coach intermediates. It's yeah. just somebody who values my outlook on training and my advice yeah. and who genuinely wants to learn and will work hard. That's my yeah, favorite, I think favorite type of... That's quite interesting. I mean, as much as, you know, I think, uh, you know, as, as students or members or clients or whatever, you yeah. know, like that whole interview process of deciding like what kind of coach you want I mean coaches as well I think should um, do a good job of you know not necessarily just just accepting anybody that would definitely, be willing yeah. to uh, De you definitely have to vet people um, I try to keep my numbers kind of small mm. if I tried to coach 30 people at once I would do a very poor job right just um, too many exactly so yeah. I at the moment I'm coaching three to five people mm -hmm. um, and that way I can invest a lot of time into them. I can give them highly individualized programs. Yeah. Um, I can get a lot of feedback and give a lot of feedback. Um, I think the thing which, is, uh, which really makes me want to take somebody on as a client or want to coach somebody is if they're, they're clear on their goals, they know what they want, um, and, um, and I'm stuck for words, <laughs> what so, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, if, if they can give a, a kind of um, an elaborate um, rationale for why why they want me to coach them, that's, yeah. That's, that's a good answer. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That was one thing, uh, like, cause I taught uh, English in Korea, you know, like a second language for like 10 years. Yeah. And even teaching at university level, you know, for eight, I... One thing I noticed, like having a lot of these conversations, like like let's say with yourself and Daniel and and Devin, is that my English has gotten horrible because yeah. I spend so much time like. <laughs> I wish I could say that because <laughs> I don't speak a second language, so that's, this is just fatigue and jet lag and probably all the speaking English together. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool, man. Um, it's been really great to to have you on. Uh, where would uh, where would everybody find you? Like, where's the best place to reach you? Um, so my website is simonsterstrength.com. Mm. I have the same handle on Instagram and, yeah. uh, and YouTube. So if you want to find training programs or tutorials, YouTube yeah. and my website are probably the, the best places to go. Mm. For more concise tips, you can visit my Instagram. Yeah. When, uh, and I just this came back to my, um, my, my thought process, but uh, with regards to uh, doing, like, personal training with your clients and stuff, yeah. have you noticed... Or what's been the most difficult with regards to uh, having clients one to one in a in a very in a physical setting versus like dealing with clients on like online based and just going through videos or you know more distance learning based. Yeah, it's it's obviously to give it's obviously easier to give feedback in a timely manner when it's one to one. Mm. Um, whereas when you're doing online coaching, you need to have somebody you know, record themselves doing an exercise, send it to you, and then you can give feedback. So it's a lot less timely. But yeah. other than that, I don't find that there are too many obstacles. If you communicate effectively, I think um, 
you can achieve similar results with online coaching or in-person coaching. Mm. So yeah, that being said, coming back to your question about who I like to take on, if somebody can give me a comprehensive reason for why they want me to coach them, they have clear goals, they yeah. know what they want in mind, yeah. it makes it a lot easier for me and it makes me um, a lot happier to, to take them on as a yeah. client. And you would obviously not, you wouldn't necessarily want someone where you had to like chase them down to get videos so you can... No, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So the people who are enthusiastic and each week they send me a video yeah. um, and they say, Simon, I'd appreciate your feedback on this. They're, they're great. They're the people that I, I love to coach. Mm. The people who genuinely want to learn are the yeah. people who I, who I like to yeah, coach. Yeah, I think that was a, so it's like the classes that I would teach at the university, they were definitely some students that just, they were just in the classroom because it was a mandatory class. Exactly, yeah, I've had that yeah. as well. I've had, yeah. um, I've had clients that I coach who each week I say, um, send me a video of, of your training for the week and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll provide feedback. Um, fill out your, your training spreadsheet and provide me feedback with the exercises. And I have some clients who do that very diligently and I have some who forget. And I would much prefer somebody to actually send me mm -hmm. comprehensive feedback and say, Simon, I didn't like something or this week went well and send me the exercises um, because it will help them progress more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's very if, if I have somebody who doesn't utilize that, I'm like, why are you why did you hire me mm. <laughs> well i think it's kind of interesting too like uh even um you know even having like an open door policy and then then nobody even taking advantage of it like if you uh, you know had sessions where also like for me at the university like i could have like four hours every day where you can come and ask any questions that you would want to ask and you know like there'd be some semesters where like not a single student would even yeah. come and ask questions it's like, well, they either must be all like super smart and know everything, which is probably highly unlikely, um, yeah. or two, they just not generally, um, well, maybe their interest is just not at the point where they wanted to yeah. take the... Yeah, I, I definitely welcome questions and appreciate questions when I get them from clients or students. Mm. Yeah, it shows a genuine interest to learn. Yeah. Has there ever been any questions that you just felt like were just not smart questions? Um, yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I think that, um, I, I like to be charitable with people when they ask a question. Yeah. So, you know, I think how long is it going to take me to get something is a fair question. It's not absolutely stupid. It's just yeah. something I can't give a, a concise exact answer to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, questions like that, I definitely, um, I don't prefer them, mm. but I think they're, they're fine. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Uh, well, thank you again for uh, having this quick chat. No and, um, dude, I'm super excited for this week. I think it's going to be a, an amazing time to um, to conversate with all all the high level practitioners, coaches yourself, and and then also the just having everybody train together. I think it's going to be yeah, pretty be full on. Man. Yeah, looking forward yeah. to it. Great. Uh, so uh, for everybody listening, thank you again for joining us on the the Ron Strength Practitioners Panel. Uh, this is Simon Ada, and uh, we'll see you next time with, uh, oh, the next one's going to be with Daniel Vadnell, so that one's going to be a nice one to tune into as well. But uh, until next time, train hard. <laughs>